Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me again. People keep getting sick or abandoning me, but it's fine. You're stuck with me now. But if you don't like it, you can like switch to another podcast where you can other people. But it's fine. We're going to have some fun anyway. We're back in my comfort zone. We're doing some World War II. Thank God it's been a while. I've kind of been missing it a little bit. So with me today, I have Dave Roberts, who's a historian and an ex-history teacher, and he's got a particular passion for the 30 AU Commando. And that, funnily enough, might be what we're talking about today. Dave, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Sun's shining. I'm, I'm happy. Yeah, I know. As soon as the, the weather's kind of going to go to shit, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not kind of looking forward to that. But hey, we are where we are. And uh, we're going to be doing some World War II. Yay! I really shouldn't say that. No, That's it's really nice bad. to see someone happy about it. Oh, yeah, because everybody likes, like, I don't know, World War One or something boring. Like, actually, I better not comment that. <laughs> Careful. <laughs> I will start annoying some people, but it's fine. We're going to be talking about something, you know, you've been passionate about this for a while. What got you interested in this? So, probably about 10 years ago, I... Uh, I picked up a copy of Nick Rankin's book, um, Ian Fleming's Commandos. And I've always had a passion for and an interest in the, the slightly obscure side of military history. I'm, I'm not a great one for, you know, jumping on board the D-Days and the market gardens and all the rest of it. I want something that's quirky, that nobody else is really into, that nobody really knows a lot about. Um, and then just delved into that, started to develop an interest pick up a couple of books and then it's just blown up um yeah so i'm now running facebook groups i'm running a website um, um the sort of point of contact for the the current unit um you, you know I'm just amassing this huge amount of archive information about the unit perfect we'll do some plugging right at the end for this facebook group and everything else in case anybody wants to join but you've perfect. just use the key word that was going to be my first proper because that really wasn't a question but my first proper question is well Ian Fleming you've mentioned him he's a writer but he was also involved in the second world war tell us a little bit about what he was up to yeah so everybody will know Ian Fleming because of James Bond um, and but you know during the second world war he was right at the heart of the British Intelligence Network. Um, he's often viewed sometimes as a bit of a, just a desk jockey, a bit of a pen pusher. Um, but he was so much more than, than that. Um, there's a brand new biography coming out at the moment, um, that will sort of detail more about that. Um, but yeah, he was right at the heart of it. He was assistant to the director of naval intelligence, specifically recruited. Um, by the director, Admiral Godfrey. Um, and he sat on all the committees, all the information. He was um, 
You know, he was part of every operation that was being planned at the highest levels. He knew what was going on in SOE, at Bletchley Park, in MI6. He he represented on the Joint Intelligence Committee. Um, he was right at the heart of it. So it's no surprise that he ends up writing spy novels after the war. And it's kind of funny that he's involved in all of this. And then, like you said, he just writes spy novels because... He knows everything. He knows the intricacies. He knows the missions. He knows exactly what happened, where, why, and how. So I'm curious to know, I don't know if anybody might be able to answer this question, but how many of his Bond books reflect on things that we don't know about and he does? So there are numerous references within his novels um, that you can identify aspects of what was going on in British intelligence. and. Specifically, from my point of view and from this conversation, what was happening with with 30 AUs, 30 commandos, um, because that was that was his baby. Um, sometimes it's referred to as his own private navy or his own private army. Um, he nicknamed them very un-PC wise, but he nicknamed them the Red Indians. Um, they did end up. Why so? He he once referred to them that uh, he told he, he he told them off once because he said you're not allowed to act like a bunch of red Indians when you're operations. Um, they had a certain um, they had a certain disregard for rules, regulations, and and doing things by the book, like many special operation units during the war. But um, being being Marines and, and Navy officers, they probably had a slightly less disregard for. The military discipline and so on. Well, this is the um, thing at the end of the day is that spying and special ops and things like that, you can't plan every single second of every single moment because what if something goes wrong? you got to wing it. You can't go by the book, can you? No, no. And it's interesting, when the unit is created, it's made up of Royal Marines, Royal Navy and the Army. The Air Force didn't want anything to do with it at the start. They thought they were far too good for it. Um, didn't want to <coughs> no comments. Well, <laughs> didn't want to be dabbling in this murky world that the, the Navy were creating. But the, the unit was made up of, of volunteer Navy officers. So they were all Royal Navy volunteer reserves. None of the regular Royal Navy officers joined the unit. And I really think that that was because they saw it as a, as a bit of a risk. You know, they wanted nice, safe careers, and this little unit that was going to be operating on land wasn't seen as a nice, safe career option or any sort of promotion progression, you know, if you're a career Navy officer. So let's but, stick with uh, Ian Fleming. We're going to come back to the yeah. to the uh, 30 AU. But Fleming also, he's, he's got an important role in the deep, I can never say it, Dieppe Raid. God, I can never say Dieppe that Raid, right. yeah. In the Dieppe Raid, tell us a little bit about what what he was involved in. So this is where his his embryo idea of this intelligence unit. This is where it's it's first tested. So David O'Keefe, the Canadian historian, puts a very compelling argument together that in fact the whole of the Dieppe Raid is centred on this need to use this intelligence assault unit thirty commando um, because. At that point in the war, the Germans had recently introduced a four-rotor Enigma machines. Bletchley Park had gone blind, so there was no, they, they couldn't crack any of the codes. Dieppe 
had the four rotor machines, it had the code books, it had the sizes, it had everything that we needed. So it was an ideal spot to try and raid under the cover of this larger scale operation. And the idea was, Fleming's idea was to insert this elite unit from, uh, from 40 Commando at that point, drop them into Dieppe Harbour. They would assault the German naval headquarters, which they thought was in the Hotel Modern in, in Dieppe, grab whatever they could, jump onto a little fast boat, get it back to Fleming, who was waiting um, on one of the, the destroyers watching the, the Dieppe raid. And then he would, you know, whiz it back to London and be the savior of the the crypto network, savior for Bletchley Park by bringing all this vital information back. Um, suffice to say, it didn't go to plan at all, um, and none of his special unit, none of the intelligence assault unit, even made it ashore. Um, they had to abandon their their landing craft and swim back. Um, to the waiting, to the waiting destroyers to be picked up. Um, so it was, in that respect, it was a failure, but in November 42, they, they, uh, they take part in the raid on Algiers in a similar sort of operation that are much more successful. Okay. Here's a question for you. Who crashed the Enigma? <laughs> so, um, we all know that the Polish were the first to do it. And they brought it all over to the SEC. I know where you were coming from on that one. You're not going to catch me out. <laughs> <laughs> There's a really good new book on uh, Marian Drajewski. So it kind of talks about the whole process of how they did it all in the 1930s uh, before and how they met the British in Warsaw before the war and all this kind of stuff and how the British were like really annoyed that they didn't, they didn't crack it first. <laughs> yeah. Like, Dude, it's just a bunch of mathematicians. We're nothing special. Just like it's all yeah. mathematics. So um, and just going off, just going off on a tangent. It, you know, it, it amazes me that that was just a commercial machine that that some of the Europeans, particularly the Germans, thought this could be useful, and the Brits were very sort of dismissive of it. And no, 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 we don't need anything like you know, we don't need anything fancy like that. We'll buy one to have a look at, and that'll be it. it yeah, it's, <laughs> I think it was. If I'm not mistaken, the, the British counterpart that came in. He got like the ump and he kind of like walks. I think they had the British and the French that come in. He got the ump and he was just like, oh, like literally, oh, fuck this, this is stupid. And just like walked off. I'm like, okay, yeah, no. you're going to need this literally in a couple of months' time. Don't be a dick about it. Don't be a dick. So, right, anyway, enough of our little tangent because I always tend to do this. Now, Ben McIntyre, yes, you know where I'm going with this. Ben McIntyre yeah. wrote a fabulous book. Because we all love Ben McIntyre. I don't know. Do you love Ben McIntyre? Because I love Ben McIntyre. Yes. Yeah. Okay, then we're good. Yeah. We're good. We're on the right level here. Ben McIntyre has written many, many good spy books from Zigzag to his newest one about the the escape from Colditz and things like that. But he also Mm. wrote a book on Operation Mincemeat. Yeah. Where does Mincemeat fall into this narrative? So Mincemeat is one of the operations that, that Fleming's involved with. But he's more of a sort of bit player in that. He he knows about it, he's aware of it, he facilitates it, but he doesn't have a central role in it. Um, he, he There's an argument as to whether or not he takes credit for coming up with the idea, because it was an idea that had been used in a spy novel that he'd read. He was, very, he was a real literal 
person. He loved his books. He was a bibliophile. Um, and he'd read a story where they used this sort of idea. So he came, he, he facilitated the idea. Um, but it was very separate from, from 30 AU, 30 Commando. Um, Fleming had his fingers in many pies. Um, and some of the operations he planned were, were, were straight out of a Bond novel. So Mincemeat is, is one example. There's, uh, there's Operation Ruthless, which is his plan to crash a captured German bomber into the channel so that it can be rescued by a German SE rescue boat. The supposed German crew of the plane will then jump out of his arm, capture the boat and sail the boat back to Britain along with the Enigma machine and code books and so on that would be on board. Oh, well, that's um, a bit, um, what's the right word of saying this? Not dramatic. It's a bit ambitious is the word I was looking for. Yeah, and it got the go-ahead. Um, the RAF agreed with it. They had a captured um, workable Heinkel bomber. They had um, German Air Force uniforms and so on. That said that this, and you know, it got as close as the plane being stopped from taking off because it was foggy. The operation was set to set to go. Um, and that's it. And that's the reason it was it was stopped just because of the weather. Yeah, not the fact that, you know, it's really difficult to crash land a plane successfully onto the, the ocean and um not, not without killing it, everyone on board. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um but that's the that's the sort of thing as he was coming up with. Operation Tracer was that if Gibraltar had been captured and fallen, Operation Tracer was that a small, I think it's a six man team, were going to be basically locked into a cave in Gibraltar um, so they could watch and observe what was going on and send reconnaissance reports back um, you know and they were going to be sealed into that cave with about sort of six months supply of food. And how are they going to be sending out reports? Uh, by radio because I think the hope was that obviously they could just sort of send them across the straits into um, what at that point would still have been sort of allied Rocco. Um, yeah. But, so, you know, so some of these, and these, these are some of the schemes that, that made it slightly further than just Ian's, uh, Fleming's sort of drawing pad. So, I mean, it's not as ridiculous as it kind of sounds because the Japanese were doing the same thing. They were literally burying themselves in uh, what they're called um, bunkers underneath. For, for weeks, for months on end, when fighting yep. in the Pacific. But at the same time, it just sounds absolutely ridiculous to just shove a load of people, a six-man team, into a cave, basically. I, I don't get it. Yeah. Are there any um, other ones, any other crazy ones that didn't get uh, that didn't get through? I think that I think, uh, Rufus is always the one that finds that strikes me as the craziest, and the fact that people agreed to it. Yeah, I think that's that's the one that gets me. Um, but so, but Fleming wasn't just an ideas man. He was so when when Germany invades France in sort of in sort of May 1940, he is sent to to Paris to liaise with the French Navy because there's a concern that if France falls, the Navy's going to be fall into German hands. So he's sent across to liaise with the, the, the French Navy. Um, is in Paris as Paris begins to fall. So it has to. Skedaddle rather quickly from there, um, 
carrying a large amount of cash from the from the uh, embassy safe, um, skedaddles down to the southwest of France, um, helps organise some of the evacuation, um, and then makes his way back to Britain, um, having failed to get the agreement, you know, for the for the French Navy to come over. He 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 set up an idea where he would the, the Isle of Wight would be set up as a little French enclave. Um, where the French Navy could be based and almost turned over into French soil. That was that was one of the options that was talked about. Um, so yeah, so he you know he he wasn't just sat behind a desk the whole war, but he wasn't Jeff Bond either. He wasn't out in the field, you know, doing the operations. But he wasn't a nobody either. Oh no, definitely not. He was um, very much at the heart of of, of everything and, and knew about everything and this is one of the reasons why he wasn't allowed to go out on operations because he was indoctrinated you know he knew the enigma secret he knew what Bletchley Park was doing um, so he couldn't be risked. Right so you told us you told us the beginnings of uh, 30 AU right? Yeah. So we've got crazy naval people no <laughs> airmen because they're too good for them <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what else do we know about who they were? I mean, are there any other people involved that are important? Like you said, you mentioned something about the Marines. Yeah. So the the idea is this idea for this intelligence assault unit is floated by Fleming in February 1942. Um, it's based on units that the Germans were using when they invaded the Balkans um, and Greece. So you know, it's copying an idea that the Germans were using and developing it, and because it was naval intelligence that came up with it. They wanted some control. Um, they wanted to utilize their men. Um, the Royal Marines were were their arm of, of if you like, armed uh, units. So it was planned to be a combination of the Royal Navy, the Royal Marines, and a, a military element. Um, so that was all put together. Obviously, that needed the agreement of those certain elements. And as I said, the RAF were considered themselves that they didn't need this. This they just wanted to do their own thing. Um, but yeah, so initially it's tested at Dieppe, but its first proper operation as as thirty commander is during Operation Torch, the invasion of. Um, North Africa, and specifically an attack on Algiers. You've just mentioned Algiers. Let's stick with that topic. What okay. happens in Algiers? So very similar to um, the app, the plan was, and very similar also to the sort of San raid as well. The plan was to uh, attack the the port of Algiers with two uh, Royal Navy destroyers. Um, 30 Commando at that point, very, there was about a dozen of them. They were alongside uh, American assault infantry, um, very green, untested American infantry. And the plan was to break through the, the booms protecting the harbour, pull up alongside the quay, disembark. 38 Commando would race to the French naval headquarters, would seize all the intelligence that they could, and um, before anybody had it, you know, any plan to sort of sign an armistice or surrender. 
the hope was that the French wouldn't really resist. They'd see these American troops, they'd see these two destroyers, which were flying the Stars and Stripes rather than the White Ensign. Royal Navy wasn't particularly popular with the French in North Africa. Um, so the hope was that there would be no resistance, that they could just march in uh, and take over. That wasn't the case, and the French opened fire on both of the destroyers. HMS Malcolm, that was carrying um, the troop of 30 commando, decides that it's too hot to handle. It gets hit a couple of times, um, so it turns around and exits the way. The one carrying the majority of the American troops actually pulls alongside, disembarks its American troops, and they are very quickly captured and made prisoners of war by by the French. Um, Thirty, the the the, uh, the officer in charge at this point of Thirty Commando is a guy called Dunstan Curtis. Dunstan Curtis was a uh, pre-war lawyer, joined Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve, and actually won a DSC at Saint Nazaire because he was captaining the uh, the MGB that was the headquarters for um, Robert Ryder, who won his VC at, at Saint Nazaire. Um, so. Hold on, is that yeah. is that the husband of Sue Ryder by any chance? Oh, I I don't know. I've got his biography, but I don't know. I'm going to throw this into Google while you're talking. Uh, what was okay. his name again? So it's Robert Ryder. Robert Ryder. Right, okay, keep going, and I'm going to do yeah. us. Uh, I'm going to do us. Uh, uh, Robert Ryder. Yeah, Robert Ryder, VC. Um, so yeah. Um. Obviously the. 38th Commando were not able to land in Algiers, um, but Curtis is still determined that they're going to land somewhere. So he transfers to another ship and they land at a beach about 12 miles Algiers and decide just to march in what's now become sort of true Royal Marine yomping style. They just head off on foot, um, head for Algiers, um, capturing uh, an Italian Armistice Commission building, um, and in there, that's where they make their first major, if you like, pinch or discovery, um, and that is a uh, a type of Enigma machine that was used by the German Abwehr and had not been discovered by Bletchley Park at that point. So this machine allows Bletchley Park to start to read. Um, messages that have been sent between France and North Africa and North Africa and Germany through the Abwehr network. Um, so this sort of validates Fleming's idea for this unit. And this is where they, you know, they, they have their first success and from then on become a vital part of any of Allied um, operations in, uh, in terms of invasions. I mean, what I've got so far... Go. I've been Googling. What I've got so far, they were not husband and wife. However, the Ryder family is uh, it's a noble family. So there is some sort of, they could have been brother and sister. I don't know. I'd have to delve into this a little bit more. But somebody out there might be able to answer this question. Okay. So, yeah. I, I, something that had, had never occurred to me. I hadn't, I hadn't come across it. But yeah. It's um, quite. It's an interesting point. So it's because I've been doing some research for someone on Sue Ryder recently. So that's why it's kind of clicked in my brain a little bit uh, on the odd side. Right. Um, let's move on away from my rabbit hole as usual. 
so, so the they they capture three admirals, right? Yes. Who yeah. are these admirals? I mean, and what is this achievement all about? Why is it such a, I say, great or? It's I guess I guess unique is the word because it, it's one man who does all three. So it's not even just that thirty commando capture three three admirals, one from Italy, one from well three from Germany and one from Japan. It's Holy the, shit! Really? Same, yeah, it's the same guy that does it. Oh my god! Um, uh, is he the so, biggest badass ever? Um, he has an amazing backstory, like a lot of the characters in this. He has an amazing backstory. So his uh, this guy is um, nicknamed Central Glanville, John Glanville. Sorry, James Glanville. Um, pre-war, he's working for Price Waterhouse in Zagreb. Um, and for all intents and purposes, he is effectively buying for, for British intelligence. He's nominal vice consul in Zagreb, but he's, you know, he's part of the intelligence network there. When the Italians um, invade, he's, he's captured by the Italians. Um, he is exchanged in a prisoner exchange, makes his way back to the UK via Lisbon, where he engages in um, some interesting intelligence gathering work. Lisbon was a hub for intelligence, you know, spy networks and so on. Makes his way back to London, is uh, recruited by SOE, um, is then recruited by um, Ian Fleming into 30 Commando. He's never held any military rank, so, but he's, he's given a, um, a temporary commission in the army initially. Because there's too many soldiers in 30 Commando, he has to be commissioned into the Navy. So he's commissioned as a lieutenant in the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve and ends up joining the unit in Sicily. Goes on for the rest of the war as part of the unit, but um, his his achievement of capturing three admirals. So uh, when thirty third commander were operating um, off the coast of Italy, their job was to uh, capture naval targets around the Italian coast, um, and one of them was uh, the uh, Italian torpedo base at uh, San Martino on an island called San Martino. Where an admiral called Minicini, who's head of the Italian torpedo division development was, and the Italians were very um, advanced in their torpedo design, particularly when you think about sort of the human torpedo elements, those sort of things. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So, using an Italian um, fast attack boat, Glanville and a small unit uh, raid San Martino, capture the Admiral, capture his wife, 
his wife insists on packing properly. Um, so a British a British captain, Martin Smith, um, who spoke fluent German, was helping her, um, and she was so she was so impressed by him that she thought he was actually German, and commented that she'd been helped by a nice German officer to pack her bags and and to leave. Um, I just want to add this in here. So they were given this opportunity to basically pack nicely, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And the Germans, when they invaded, you know, all the other places and they were forcing people to leave, these people had five to ten minutes to pack their shit up and get out. Like, yeah. just the, the the difference in between that is incredible. Yeah. It's, it's just a very British way of doing it, isn't it? You know, letting the lady pack her bags. And then, then get the Marines to carry them down to the quay, throw them on board a, a fast attack boat, and you know sail back to Capri, which is where they were based at the time. Um, yeah, and it, it, it's around that time that, that they work alongside a couple of uh, interesting characters. So John Steinbeck, the author, um, joins them on one of these raids on one of these fast attack boats, um, and in one of his books, and I can never remember the title of it. Um, he 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 talks about this raid. He doesn't mention Thirty Commando by name, but he talks about Royal Marines, and he talks about them in some very unpleasant terms, describing them as very rough and ready and you know a bit uncouth. But why? <laughs> Probably because they were. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> Probably because they were, but you know they didn't particularly care, and they were efficient. You know they were good at their job, and they did work alongside um, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. The actor. Because he was captaining a an American fast attack boat off the coast of Italy, so they uh, they took part in a raid alongside him as well. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, and obviously he would have been a film star at the time, so that must have been a you know you wonder whether there was a bit of starstruck <laughs> in the uh, in the Marines as they boarded his boat. Oh, well, I don't yeah. know if you're like if you're like hardcore commando guys, I think they probably held their shit together a little, a little bit better. <laughs> Or there was good banter. Yeah, even if they wanted to, they're not going to let you know. They're not going to let it slip either. So that's his that's his first admiral. Um, then in 1945, as Germany is collapsing, there's this huge race between the British and Americans on one side and the Russians on the other side. The Soviets to grab as much of German technology, intelligence, personnel, scientists as possible. So there's this huge race going on. Thirty. They knew as they were at that point, were at the spear point of that. That was their main goal, was to capture rocket scientists, rocket technology, submarine technology. Um, but Glanville discovers that he can find the entire German naval archives from 1870, that they've been moved out of their base um, in Berlin, and they've been sent to a castle in the south of Germany. Castle uh, Slosh Tambach. So Glanville and his group of about a dozen Marines turn up at this castle. He knocks on the door and asks to see the Admiral. The sentry on the door says, which one? There are three of them. So eventually they go in and they discover that the entire German naval archive from 1870 right up to that present moment are stored in this castle. There are three high-ranking German admirals in it. A small staff and a rather belligerent group of female German naval um, personnel 
who are intent on destroying the archives before they fall into German hands, uh, into Allied hands, sorry. So, wow. So it's Glan- Glanville and his small groups waiting for the Americans to turn up. Um, Glanville drinking with the uh, German admirals discussing various aspects of naval warfare and his marines trying desperately to keep these women away from burning the uh, the archives. Uh, so Germans were very good at burning their archives, basically, <laughs> and getting yeah. rid of everything that they had. Yeah, apparently the archive, was, it was like just the whole of the castle was taken up by it. And the castle was still inhabited by the lady that owned it, who was a Hungarian aristocrat who uh, didn't take too kindly to having um, Germans there. And she must have been really strong-willed because she refused to allow them to fly um, any swastika of the German military flags outside. And they, she was only, they were only allowed to fly her, um, her sort of family crest. So she must have been quite formidable. How the hell did she get away with that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, so that's that's his sort of second um, part of his hat trick. So that's he's ticked off the Italians. He's ticked off the Germans at that point. After Germany surrenders, Glanville is then sent out to Southeast Asia to with a small a small party of thirty commanders to basically set up a unit out there and do what they've been doing in Europe and in the Mediterranean out in in the Far East. And the plan is that they would take part in the invasion of Malaysia. So they would there was an invasion plan from up into Malaysia, into Penang, the island of Malaysia. And thirty of you were going to be part of that. Obviously before all that can take place, um the atomic bombs are dropped, Japan surrenders. Glanville finds himself as one of the senior British representatives in France, in French Indochina at that point. Uh, and it's at that point he then takes the surrender of his senior Japanese admiral to complete his hat-trick. Holy shit. The only thing he's really missing, uh, well, obviously it would have been mattered much more at the beginning of the war, but a Soviet general would have just <laughs> yeah. finished the trifecta there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this, this is... And Glanville also, he takes part in the D-Day landings. And I think we're going to talk a bit about that later. But he takes, so he lands on Juno on D-Day. And one of the Marines who's with him, Sandy Powell, talks about looking over and watching Glanville just walk up the beach with a walking stick in hand. And when he gets to the edge of the beach, he's more interested in the fact that he spotted a rare butterfly in a hedgerow than anything to, to do with, you know, What's going on on the, on the beach? He was, yeah, he was a character. He wasn't particularly well liked. He was, he was considered to be arrogant and a bit full of himself. But, you know, yeah, you need a bit of that. He sounds like the odd guy out and I like him. I like him. But he's not the the only one though, is he? You've got a couple of characters. Yeah, there's a lot of them. The unit seems to attract quite a few. I was about to say oddballs, but they're not oddballs. They're just I was going to say, I was going to take the words right out of your mouth. Oddballs. Yeah, yeah. oddballs would be, it'd be, yeah, it'd be far too uh, disparaging, I think. So um, we've talked about McGrath. Um, we've talked a little bit about Curtis. Um, we talked a bit about Ryder. Robert Ryder and Quentin Riley, who becomes the CO for the unit, both of them are polar explorers. 
Um, so you can sort of see the type of men that are getting involved in this. You know, these guys have been to the, to the North Pole and, and so on. Ryder is the only man ever to have been awarded the Polar Medal and the Victoria Cross, apparently. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, so there's it. Then recruited into the unit is someone called Patrick D.L. Job. And he's often, or well, there was a period where he was considered to be the model for James Bond. Um, he's Scottish, he was a skier, he was fluent in languages, um, he was good at sailing, he was very athletic. Um, famously says that he, you know, Bond was a womanizer and Patrick only ever loved one woman, so it couldn't be him. That, that's a quote from himself. But he, he'd had an interesting career. He'd been at, in Norway in 1940 for the invasion and he was at Narvik and was responsible for evacuating a large amount of civilian population in the direct contravention of his orders. He was ordered not to evacuate the population, um, but he did it anyway. He lands as part of the D-Day landings on Utah Beach and then spends the next few months racing around the French countryside with his small team operating in jeeps with sort of a couple of armoured cars. He would famously stand up in his jeep and wave a fencing sword that he had acquired from somewhere, pointing the direction. His jeep was fitted with a, uh, a captured MG42 that was welded to the bonnet. Um, and in the evening, he would play the bagpipes around around the campfire. Uh, yeah. So uh, he was. He. Yep. <laughs> trying to find words. He he took this he took the, the surrender of uh, uh, Bremen and Bremhaven because he were the, they were the first Allied troops into those those cities in uh, in Germany and then once it was all over he nipped back to Norway to find the Norwegian girl that he'd um, met originally and fallen in love with and married her and stayed together for the rest of their lives. Oh, at least there's a nice ending there, because I was oh, yeah. expecting you to say, no, he no. found the Norwegian girl, she's moved on with some other guy. <laughs> no, 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 he, they were very happily married. Um, uh, their son um, their son actually became a, ma- a major in the Welsh Guards and, took, and was in the Falklands, was decorated for his operations in the Falklands. And his grandson is now in the army. I think he's a colonel in the army. Oh, wow. Yeah. The legacy continues there. But does um, his personality reflect on his son and his grandson? I think on his son, I think it's less. I think it's diluted a little bit by the time it's got to his grandson. But I'm not going to say say too much because I do know both of them. I have I have had chats with both. So I'll I'm tell you this: I highly believe in that. So my my grandmother is the nicest, sweetest, kindest human being, and she wouldn't hurt a fly. And my mother is a slightly diluted version of her. And then fuck knows what happened to me. So. <laughs> but those are, so those are some of the officers that are involved but there's also some real characters in the uh in the rank and file so there's one one guy called paul mcgrath um joins the unit right at the start serves right the way through in every operation um you know he's a boxing champion he's very typically he's not particularly disciplined he actually gets demoted twice um, striking an officer, 
Um, and at one point, is actually right at the end of the war, he's actually uh, RTU to his return to his original unit, dismissed from 30 AU um, for striking a German officer after the surrender. But the German officer hadn't been very polite to uh, Magrath's marine officer, so you know he deserved okay. got him into us. Makes sense. Yeah, one of the probably one of the most interesting ones is uh, a guy called Johnny Ramensky, who was a prolific Scottish safe cracker and burglar. Spent most of the 1930s going in and out of prison um, for safe cracking burglary. 1943, he's uh, up in front of a judge, and the judge says, right, you're either going to prison for life or you join the army. So he joins the army. He's very quickly recruited by 30 commandos and becomes the expert safe cracker. When part of the commando go into Rome, when Rome is liberated, they take over the German embassy in Rome, and Romensky blows, I think it's 12 safes in one day. In oh, shit. Yeah. He does a similar job in Paris in August that year. So he's flown over to, to Paris to, to do a similar job over there. Um, and then he's flown back to, to Italy and spends the rest of the war with the remains of the commander in Italy. There's, there's one interesting story where he, he goes AWOL for a few days um, as the unit's just outside Florence. He goes AWOL, comes back into the unit, Everybody goes, where have you been? No, no, just, you know, nowhere in particular. But the problem is, is that the, the Italian police report that there's been a series of um, safe-cracking raids in the local area. Uh, red flag, everyone. Yeah. Red flag. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, so the, there are, the unit is just full of, of characters. Sadly, I didn't get to meet many of them. Most of them passed on by the time that my interest was sort of piqued by this. I did meet uh, a gentleman called Bill Marshall, who was a Marine, um, and he figures heavily in um, in Nicholas Shakespeare's new biography of Ian Fleming. Uh, he was a fan- fascinating guy to talk to. Very honest, very open, really fascinating. But we do have what we one survivor. We have one survivor of the unit who turned 100 this year, um, wow. Tom Bowman, who lives over in Canada, and the current 30 commander of the Royal Marines actually flew over some of their men to give him a special presentation, a surprise visit, presenting with a new Green Beret, presenting with a um, this beautiful statue of a World War II Marine. But Tom's got a fascinating story. He joined the Marines, um, joined... 30 Commando, went to Sicily, took part in Operation Husky. A couple of weeks into the operations in Sicily, he was shot in the shoulder. Um, And sadly for him, although he survived, it was serious enough to medically discharge him from uh, the unit and the service. And sadly as well, that was the last contact he had with anybody from the unit. Because it was such a top secret thing, he wasn't allowed to know obviously where they were, couldn't make any contact with them. So it wasn't until, uh, what, three years ago during COVID, um, David O'Keefe met up with him in, um, in Canada and we pointed out 
Tom that he'd not actually been shot by a German sniper, which he'd always assumed. He'd been shot by one of his comrades who'd been cleaning his rifle at the time. Oh no, you're joking. Yeah. Um, and uh, that, as I say, that was Tom had believed for 70 years that he'd been shot in the shoulder by a German sniper. Um, oh, that's so awful. It's such a sad way to, you know, because he had no contact with the unit. But again, he is so on the ball. He is so with it. He's got some amazing stories of his time. His memory is, is unbelievable. Um, you know, and just great to still have that, that connection. But I honestly believe he is, he is the last. I don't believe there is any more out there. Which is sad. I want to say something funny, but I can't. I'm now, you just made me really sad. <laughs> Thanks for that. I'm losing, I'm losing my words. I don't know what to say anymore. Um, let's move on. I don't want to say to happier times because it's not happier times, but the 30AU end up fighting in D-Day and you mentioned that like right at the start about this. Tell us a yeah. little bit more what happens in, on D-Day. So by the time D-Day comes, um, well, by the time planning for Overlord is beginning in sort of January 44, um, 30AU have proved themselves, 30 Commander have proved themselves to be effective, they've proved themselves to be useful. So they're, they become an integral part of the operations the planned for, for D-Day. And the unit is expanded, it's given its new name, 30 Assault Unit, it's given new badges, it's given new equipment, new training. And on D-Day itself, um, for part for the D-Day operations, it's split into three uh, operational forces. So this first one is Pike Force, and that lands on Juno Beach alongside the Canadians, actually on D-Day itself, about 8.25, 8.35, I think they land on the beach. And their target is a radar station at Douvre, um, just down the road. Kurt Force, um, under Curtis, they land on Gold Beach on D-Day plus one. And then Wolf Force, which is the main large force included in the headquarters, they land on Utah Beach on D-Day plus four. Um, they're very keen to get involved because they've been delayed two days already. Colonel Woody, who's in charge of it, is very keen to get in. So he doesn't even wait for his trucks to get unloaded from the from the uh, landing craft. He marches the unit off in, into it, and he just says, "Right, sod it. We'll we'll wait for the, the trucks to catch up." Much to the amusement of the Americans who are sat around watching this this British unit march in step, you know, off the beach and into into who knows what. And sadly, that night, that's one of the moments that. One of the instances where the unit suffers some of its highest casualties. For its very frontline role and often operating behind the front lines, um, 30 AU suffered very few casualties. Um, it seemed to be very good at, you know, keeping its men alive. But on the night that Wolf Wars land on, on Utah, they're camping in a field, they're bivouacking in a field. Most of them don't dig any sort of trenches or anything. They feel quite safe. The more experienced men, the the older guard, they're under bushes, they're under the hedges on the side of the field. Anyway, um, as midnight approaches, a lone German plane arrives and drops butterfly bombs onto the field. Well, butterfly bombs obviously you know, drop down, spread out, um, and at least half a dozen of the unit are killed outright um, at that point. Uh, you know, and 
that was quite a shock for them because, as I say, up until that point, the, the casualties had been fairly light. Um, and there weren't many more after that, but that was the, the largest single loss of life on that. And then they spend the rest of um, 44 driving around alongside the Americans. They uh, are at the taking of Cherbourg. Um, they're often they were the first into some of the French towns and villages, so they would be the first Allied troops in there. There are occasions where the 30 AU elements are, are arriving at one end of the town and the Germans are leaving the other. You know, so, um, it was they were that close. Famously, at one point they are coming the wrong way up a road and meet an American patrol, and the American patrol stop them, look at them, and what you've got is you've got Royal Navy wearing army battle dress, wearing Royal Navy headgear, carrying American weapons, riding American jeeps and vehicles, flying a white ensign. And the Americans quite rightly believe that these are just a bunch of Germans who got it wrong. Um, and it's, n <laughs> and it's not until one of the Royal Marines takes a young, um, GI lieutenant by the by the lapels and hoists him up in the air because he had the audacity to refer to his Royal Marine lieutenant as Buddy. And oh, God. Yeah. And convinces the Americans <laughs> that these are British because no, no one else can be that eccentric or that pedantic about it. So where do they end up finishing the war? So they they take part in the liberation of Paris. They operate in the south of France, clearing up some things, and then they're sent back to the UK at the end of '44 to retrain for the invasion of uh, Germany. They arrive back um, in sort of February, March '45, and then they're operating all over Germany, capturing uh, rocket scientists, capturing midget submarines, capturing hydrogen peroxide fuel capturing trains full of V2 um, parts, the naval archives, you know, masses of stuff, and even operating, should we say, in the Russian sectors as well. So there are some possible unconfirmed but anecdotal clashes with um, some Russian troops as well. Ah, they probably could have obliterated those steady Soviet troops. Yeah, yeah. They had no idea what they were, go what they were coming up against. No. So what happens to them after the war? Do they stay as a unit? Are they dismissed? Yeah, so in um, after the fall of Germany and after the surrender of um, Japan, the unit is completely disbanded. The Marines were sent back to the unit or you know, those who were hostile, hostilities only were, uh, were demobbed. Um, and it's not until... 2010, that the Royal Marines reintroduce 30 Commando as an intelligence exploitation unit. So the Royal Marines introduced an an information exploitation unit, and in honour of um, 30 Commando, 30, they renamed they named it 30 Commando. So there is today a a 30 Commando, but from 1945 to 2010, all you had was the reunions. Of the, of the men who'd been part of it. And there was quite an active association for a while. 
which I believe would, you know, were amazing events to be at because some of the stories you could hear. And that's one of the things I don't think we know the full truth. There's not, we don't know the full story of what they were up to. It took a long time for their files to be declassified. Bill Marsh, who I talked about before, his service record, the only way we could get it declassified was we had to get in touch with the, uh, with the, the commanding officer, the general commanding the Royal Marines himself. I had to um, get in touch with him. Um, that was the only way we could get his service records released because they were they were classified up until 2050, apparently. Oh dear God! Okay. And so he I'm was assuming just... you can't talk about some of the stuff in there. Yeah, I mean it, it, it's interesting because there are lots of anecdotal bits of information. The the official records prior to January 44, the official records are very scarce, are very thin on the ground. And the records from the 1945, I think there's still some that are, class, that are classified because of some of the information, because of what they were finding. The official history that was written by Glanville after the war, when you read it now, it refers to the top secret section of the history. Mm-hmm. I can't find any trace of this top secret section, so I think it's probably still classified somewhere. Yeah, welcome to. Welcome to historianing and uh, yeah. <laughs> these sorts of areas. There's a couple of uh, classified documents I'd love to get my hands on, but I'll be 70 by the time they're <laughs> available. So maybe when I'm 70, I'll finally discover the truth or not. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the one of the anecdotal, one of the anecdotes I'm told, and I've been told by several families and many, you know, is that the von Braun brothers, the the, the German scientists who went on to sort of the Apollo program. The the official story is that they escape and they're found by accident by an American patrol. The anecdotes that I've heard, it's 30 AU that get them out of where they were to the hotel they were in to bump into the Americans. And Interesting. Yeah, they're, you know, some of the men involved in that have been very adamant that that's who they had and that's what they were doing. Hmm. Yes, but again, you know, if you look in any official documents, if you look in any official history, that that's not mentioned that at all. And I know we have to be very careful when we're dealing with people's memories of things and and you know stories that men tell of war. But when three or four different people are telling you the same sort of story, you, yeah, yeah, had you that, put a big question mark over everything. Exactly, yeah. it's, a, it's a possibility. Yeah, yeah. Listen, Dave, is there anything you want to plug before we finish? Because this has been a fabulous, I think we've been going for nearly an hour now. It's been absolutely <laughs> fabulous nearly hour. No, because we've done so much. We've done spies and a little bit of naval. Chris would have missed it. Poor Chris. But yeah. <laughs> it's been really great. I've had a really awesome time talking about this. You've made D-Day sound far more interesting than... Uh, no comment to my fellow other friends who do D-Day because there's a few of them and I don't want to hate on them. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> I mean, the, the, what, I, what I say is we've only really scratched the surface as far as 39 or 30 AU are concerned. There is a, you know, there's a massive story story there. I've done a couple of um, pieces with uh, with Woody on his World War Two TV channel. Um, so by all means, go and check out a couple of episodes I've done on there. Uh, we have a Facebook group, um, which is 
really aimed at families who, you know, come along and say, Granddad said he was in 30 Command or he worked for Ian Fleming. Is this true? And then, you know, he, he develops from there. So check us out. Um, 30 Commando Assault Unit on, on Facebook. Um, and hopefully, you know, find out more information there. I guess the long term plan, and I get asked this several times, is are you going to write a book, Dave? And I'm just like, I'd love to, but it's just like it's in the way. Yes. You know? yeah. And you need to come back. You need to do something more detailed or something more super specific. We can discuss like one specific operation or something. We can spend a whole yeah. hour doing it again because uh, that was really I, good yeah. fun. Yeah, I, I, I can talk. I can talk forever. There's, 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 we've only scratched the surface. Let's 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 dig deeper next time. But Dave, yeah. thanks so much for joining us. No, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you, Alina. Our incredible guests give us forty-five minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books. You can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. Ten percent of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.